Welcome to At Home and Abroad with Harris and Walker. Join us each week as we explore the far reaches of the globe in search of unique characters and stories to share. Reach beyond your front door and let's chat about art, architecture, history, real estate, and more. Let's jump in. Food. We all eat it. Most of us really enjoy it. Dining out and sampling local specialties has always factored into the travel experience, but now many of us travel just to seek out new flavors and food experiences. Culinary tourism is big business today. It comes in all shapes and sizes and for any budget. Why has food-related travel exploded? How does it shape our travel experience? What impact does it have on the destinations we visit? If you are globe-trotting in search of new adventures for your palate or are planning to do so, listen in as we dish on the delicious subject of food tourism. I think the word foodie has become a noun in today's society. Would you agree? I completely agree. Yeah, I think we've all become pretty food-obsessed these days, and some of us are always in search of the new and undiscovered and untasted, so... I think we've entered the age of the food tourist. Mm -hmm. But what is a food tourist? A food tourist is someone who seeks out culinary experiences to broaden their understanding of a culture or lifestyle while they're traveling. Okay. So if you travel at all, you could probably define yourself as a food tourist to some extent. I mean, it could be as simple as trying the octopus ceviche at your all-inclusive resort in Playa del Carmen. Right. Or it could be as extensive as a fully immersive food-to-table experience, you know, somewhere in the countryside in the Czech Republic. But many of us certainly do some research regarding the food and drink of a destination before we leave home. Food tourism has exploded in the last five years. I mean, exploded. Mm -hmm. Recent research indicates that 45% of travelers took part in five culinary experiences while they were abroad so beyond eating yeah like beyond just survival eating Mm -hmm. or sustenance five really food focused experiences which is quite a lot Mm -hmm. and definitely more than it used to be so more and more food has become a central focus for tourism people are often specifically choosing destinations with a well-developed or interesting food scene and through the local cuisine and food customs people are gaining that insight and understanding of the culture. Okay, so why has food tourism gained so much popularity, do you think? Well, I mean, in my own personal opinion, I mean, you just have to look at your Instagram feed. Well, it's not just food bloggers or chefs or, you know, people who are in the industry. It's anybody just taking pictures of their brunch that they had last Sunday. So we're really more exposed, I think, to different kinds of cuisines, different kinds of food, different food presentation. My favorite right now is Modern Nona. Oh, I love her. Isn't she hilarious? She makes my day every time I see a post. When I scroll and I see it, I was like, oh, thank goodness. I know I'm going to get a good laugh here. Yeah, she's hilarious because she's absolutely no BS. Mm -hmm. And it's her granddaughter who's always interviewing her. Mm -hmm. They live in Australia, I think. But she's also... A, a big feature of the feed is her food. Mm-hmm. I'm desperate to try her tomato sauce, so I'm gonna actually gonna I'm gonna make it this week. But there are also many more avenues 
that can feed your food addiction, like cooking shows, which have been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Do you remember Walk with Yan? Absolutely oh remember God. him. He was the best. Cookbooks, food-related mm-hmm. websites, and all the food looks stunningly gorgeous. Mm-hmm. There's even a profession, did you know this, that is dedicated to food presentations? Called Absolutely. F- did you know that? Yes. Of course you did. <laughs> food stylists. You probably knew that too. I'm a firm believer that there's got to be something to that old adage, we eat first with our eyes. Uh, You know, the industry around food presentation is bigger than ever before. Absolutely. But food tourism isn't limited to really fancily plated food created by Michelin starred chefs. Food tourism embraces everything, all manner of cuisine. It could be street food, food trucks, backwater little restaurants that don't have a reputation really, Mm -hmm. or even vending machines. Like there's something for everybody out there. And it's such a small world now. We can source so many international ingredients in our own corner grocery store that used to be completely inaccessible Mm -hmm. to us. So I think our food horizons have expanded quite a bit in the last few years. I think travelers are also now seeking authentic cultural experiences when they travel in addition to more traditional mainstream itineraries, you know, like you don't just go to England and visit the Big Ben and Buckingham Palace, you're actually looking at some of the highlighted restaurants and, you know, food experiences there as well. I think people are just recognizing that the beauty of travel is not to just be an observer, but to really immerse yourself as much as you can. And there's no better way to do that than eat the food. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree. So I read one person refer to this shift towards food-focused travel as a worldwide obsession with food observation. And then they questioned whether restaurants are actually the new art museums. Love that. Yeah. Worldwide obsession with food observation. I think I'm one of the obsessed. <laughs> it was serious. I know I am. Yeah. Like take, for example, the legendary chef Anthony Bourdain. Mm-hmm. Whether you loved him or hated him, he really cemented that relationship yeah. between food and travel. I've watched every single episode of every series he has created because they were not only entertaining, but so informative. And he really demonstrated a respect for local culinary traditions with his willingness to just try anything Mm -hmm. put in front of him. Mm -hmm. And so I think he really opened up minds around the world to the vast variety of cuisine that's out there. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Bourdain changed the attitude that unfamiliar food was something to be wary of. He made it something, you know, that we could all seek out and try, really, I think. Yeah, so it's really not that surprising that food tourism has become so popular. Food and travel are so inextricably linked Mm. and in such a beautiful way. I read this quote by a writer for, you know, those travel guides, Lonely Planet. They're really, they're excellent. Mm -hmm. They're really excellent. I live by them. Anyway, this writer had said, the best food in the world is often one which comes with an unforgettable memory. So I was thinking back to our episode on souvenirs. Experiencing the cuisine of a destination is like forming an experiential memory. It's like a souvenir of the senses. What do you think about that, Walker? I think it's spot on. And you know what? There's actually some basis in science, too. Psychologists have discovered that our memories associated with food are even more sensory than other memories because they involve all of our senses, all five senses. So sight, smell, touch, sound, and of course, taste. It's really powerful. 
Absolutely. It makes it makes a lot of sense. It makes me think of those times when I've eaten something gross or that didn't agree with me. I remember having once the flu when I was a kid and I was a super huge fan of sour cream and onion chips. Yummy. <laughs> anyway, because they were sitting beside my bedside oh, no. when I was so ill, I have this horrible association with them now and I've not had one of those chips since. Actually, I have the same association with uh, Southern Comfort, but we'll talk about that maybe in a different episode. That is actually a survival tactic called conditioned taste aversion. Mm. For example, did you know that if you eat a little bit of bad sushi and get food poisoning, it may be a long, long time before you ever eat it again. So the memory associated with it can be extremely strong definitely but there's also a positive side to it too a positive association there's also an element of nostalgia connected with the preparation and eating of food as well it isn't necessarily just the food but what's happening at the time that we actually eat the food who we're with and what we're feeling at the time yeah that makes sense to me too it's that smell for me of fresh bread in the house. When I was a kid, my dad would make bread every weekend and he would rise it, you know, overnight on the top of the fridge where it was warm and then bake it in the oven the next day. And it was such a comforting weekend smell, you know, when you didn't have all the obligations of the week, you could just chill out and grab a big slice of non-nutritious white fluffy bread and slather your favorite jam on it. Lucky you. Oh my God. It was so good. So now Mm -hmm. I actually went out and bought a bread maker, even though I don't eat bread myself. So I can recreate that comfy feeling in the house. And obviously the rest of my family loves it, but I guess I'm, I'm creating those same memory associations for my own kids. Right. The comforting feeling you think about, you know, how a good part of the Western world was making bread during the pandemic to make themselves feel better. Yeah, So I guess there must be some sort of connection there. Yeah. Well, that sort of reminds me of my childhood memory, which is just as non-nutritious, perhaps, as some white fluffy bread. And it was when my grandmother used to come visit us. So she would come maybe once once a year. She'd stay for a month and she would bring this massive container of pierogies that she had Mm. made. And so she would walk in the door and it was seconds before we were ripping the lid off that bowl of pierogies and devouring them. But I can still smell and taste them in my mind. So delicious. Did you eat them with sour cream and bacon? Uh, Always sour cream, sometimes bacon. But mainly what I remember quite vividly is the dough was super thin, almost translucent where you could see the filling inside. Not like the ones that you buy in the store that are super heavy um, and thick. They weren't like that at all. And of course, they were swimming in butter and fried onions. You know, we ate them so fast because they were so good and different than what we could ever get in the store that I'm not even 100% sure that we actually chewed all of them. Oh (laughs) my gosh. swallowed some of them whole. I am not joking. That's hilarious. (laughs) But let me just say, public service announcement, do not try that at home that's right no swallowing pierogies whole <laughs> because i much. survived doesn't mean you will <laughs> that sounds so good though i love pierogies so if food creates such powerful <laughs> memories good or bad it completely makes sense that travel and food are so closely linked then when we're traveling we're in an unfamiliar environment everything we see or do or feel or smell or touch it's all brand new so when we eat when we're traveling those memories, I think, are saved in in big, bold, bright lights. Yeah, maybe those food experiences and memory service souvenirs, like you said, are touchstones of our vacations and holidays gone by. 
you know, we can really truly bring these experiences back, I guess, in a more tangible form too, which I think has become an important part of food tourism. Yeah, I can't tell you how many cookbooks I've, mm. uh, I have in my collection that are a direct result of holidaying somewhere. I've even often ordered cookbooks while I'm still at a destination so that they're on my doorstep when I get home because I'm so keen to to put whatever I've seen or learned or tasted into practice. I have to say I absolutely love that idea and I'm going to steal that. Good. It's a really good one. <laughs> I want to come home to a little gift. Yeah, really for me. absolutely. I know. It's like a little present. The, the trip's not over if you've got a cookbook on your front step. One of my favorites that I did actually that with is um, it's called Vifa's kitchen okay and I love Greek food and I know you love Greek food and I love Greece and I know you love Greece Mm -hmm. and the flavors and the dishes of this book take me right back there it's a flavor profile of all the different regions in Greece it's a little bit of variety in there which is nice like a tapestry yeah Mm -hmm. it's amazing and I actually cooked from it last weekend super simple meal super easy to prepare but it brings that those memories Mm -hmm. of your holiday right back into your own home in terms of my favorite book, now you've got me thinking about my favorite cookbook. I have to say, if I had to pick one, it would probably be Jamie Oliver's Naked Chef Cookbook, mainly because when I met my husband, he had this cookbook, and we cooked a lot when we were first dating. We'd mm. run out, we'd spend the time and pick the recipe, go seek out the ingredients at the local market, and then spend all Friday or Saturday night drinking wine and, and making these recipes. That's my so husband cute. was a big foodie before when we met, probably more so than I was back in 2000. So it reminds me of that time. That's so sweet mm-hmm. and very romantic. And I had no idea he was a big foodie back then. It's funny, you know, I've never really thought of myself as a food tourist, but I think I actually am. And maybe we all are. I think people have always taken part in food tourism, even in small ways. But the difference is now, I think there's a larger percentage of tourists who are actually planning their holidays around specific food experiences. So that I think is new. And there's so many more ways now you can customize a trip to be food focused. Okay. So what sort of things are popular with food tourists? Well, I think we're all kind of familiar with beverages, right? Like you can take a wine tasting tour Mm -hmm. in pretty much any country that produces wine or whiskey for that matter. But now a lot of guidebooks and travel websites and even the newer cruise ship itineraries are making a point of promoting local farmers markets or visiting local uh, food producers. And there are whole vacation packages that are built around learning the ins and outs of local cuisines Mm -hmm. under the guidance of local chefs. Like those cooking classes, they're really the hot ticket. Mm -hmm. My go-to is just to visit the local restaurants that are not in the touristy area, more of the undiscovered. Off the beaten track. Yeah. I personally haven't taken part in a formal tour, but I have to say that food is a big part of my travel. When I travel, I do try to experience the local dishes and try to do my research to see what local restaurants come recommended or if there's a specific restaurant that is known for preparing excellent local food. Um, I especially love mom and pop places. Mm, You're more likely to meet the people who own them and run the restaurant and you know, for me, that's a big part of the experience. Yeah. I've also taken part in cooking classes and wine tastings offered by hotels and wineries, which I would like to do more often. And certainly now that I don't travel with young children anymore, I could probably take advantage of that more often. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I have done 
which I absolutely loved, was a garden tour with a chef of a country hotel I stayed at. Ah. The ingredients were right there um, on site for them to cook from. And that's probably a topic for a whole other show. But it really added to the enjoyment of eating at the inns. I love I that. S- I would say in addition to that, that, that tour with the chef, I do like to spend a lot of time with farmers at our local farmer's market in the summer and try to incorporate everything that I can learn from them into my cooking. How about you? Have you ever taken a, a formal tour? tour a food tour it's interesting because I was trying to think have I and I of Mm -hmm. course my mind went to like wine tastings and that kind of thing but I actually I landed on probably the best tour you could possibly do on this planet earth okay we were really fortunate it was a foodie tour of a lifetime can you guess what it was Wine? Not wine. Not wine. Uh, I don't know. It was a chocolate factory chocolate? in Switzerland. Charlie. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Factory. Charlie Heather wasn't there. Heather in the chocolate factory. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was Heather in the chocolate factory. It was incredible. One of our friends had business connections with this very, very well-known, very established chocolate factory in Switzerland. And you probably know that Swiss chocolate is top notch Mm -hmm. because of their giant horned beastly cows that roam the Alps and Mm. eat all of the lovely little flowers there. They just make the best milk for the milk chocolate. I ran into some of those cows on a hike and it was frightening, but that is also (laughs) for another episode. Anyway, so we arrived. It was, we were the whole family again and we arrived at this chocolate factory. It was a private tour and the hostess led us into this big theater where we were going to watch a movie about the chocolate factory, the origins of chocolate, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And we were in this huge theater, just the five of us. And at the back of the theater were like these massive bins of beautiful, fresh chocolate of all kinds, like nougat and nuts and fruit and plain and milk and dark, all beautifully wrapped, just sitting there with nobody to supervise us. You know, some people dream about that. You actually lived it. I lived it. (laughs) And if you thought we were, I think we were well behaved for about the first five minutes of the movie. And then all hell broke loose. (laughs) Five of us just like, we were stuffing our faces. The chocolate was so good. So by the time the movie was over, which I think was like half an hour later, the hostess came to get us. We were all like, like just (laughs) our mouths were full. Our tummies were full. And then the actual tour started and it was so cool. It, It was like Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. You got to see all the chocolate on the assembly lines and how each individual piece got wrapped and then how it got shunted off into this packaging area. And then it all culminated in into the gift shop, of course, right? But by that time, we'd had all the chocolate at the front end of the tour. We ate chocolate the entire duration of the tour, which was like an additional hour. And we land in this gift shop and I'm thinking, oh my God, I can't even look at another piece of chocolate. But we did buy, we did buy a lot and we brought home a lot. It was just amazing. So I'm still grateful for that experience to this day. That sounds amazing. A little nauseating too, maybe. What do you think are the best known destinations for food tourism today? Well, when I was researching this episode, I uncovered a study that was actually just released in August of of this year of 2022. Mm -hmm. A thousand American travelers who self-identified as foodies were surveyed and the results revealed the following to be their favorite foodie countries. Not surprising at the top of the list was Mexico, Mm -hmm. which borders the southern uh, United States. 
Also not surprising to me, at least, Italy and France in Europe. And then uh, Argentina and Brazil and South America. Singapore and Thailand in Asia. Japan was actually number one in East Asia with China to a a close second. Mm. So Mexico, it makes sense that it's the number one foodie destination because all of the the subject uh, people who are surveyed were American. So that's the type of cuisine they were probably most familiar with and maybe even had some experience already cooking in their own homes. But I personally could eat my way through all of those countries. Which one would be your favorite, Walker? Hmm, good question. I guess some of these places are a little bit more expensive to get to and travel within than others. But um, I would say I'm most familiar with Italian and French cuisine and absolutely love both. Mm-hmm. I probably know the least about Argentinian and Singaporean foods. Right. So maybe one of those two countries I would yeah. be really interested to go to mm-hmm. next. I did read, though, um, in my research, that foodies who who travel will go the distance to seek out the untasted in the same way that maybe other tourists travel across the ocean to see the Statue of David or the Mona Lisa firsthand. Tourists, uh, food tourists, I should say, seek out food experiences in the same way that people seek out other sites or aspects of a destination culture like art, music, and architecture. So who are these tourists? I would think that they would have to have some money to be able to be making these trips and booking these tours. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, travel is so expensive these days. But actually, my research found that food-focused travel tends to be very popular with younger travelers like the millennials and Gen Z. Mm. I mean, certainly a good number of food tourists are also Gen X and boomers like ourselves. But you can foodie around the world in a variety of ways with a variety of budgets. It really doesn't have to be complicated or super expensive. That makes a lot of sense. In fact, one of my favorite experiences when I was uh, a struggling archaeology student, Mm -hmm. it was the first time I tried zucchini blossoms. Mm. When I think of them, I remember driving up this crazy windy road up this mountain in Crete to a small group of houses. It wasn't even a village. Um, And there was a woman there that was cooking in her kitchen out of the back of her house. She had a couple of tables lined up on the sidewalk. She brought us these stuffed zucchini blossoms there. So my friend and I had these zucchini blossoms in this lovely little part of the mountain. We were surrounded by goats. We were all by ourselves there. And, you know, it, it was a wonderful memory that I'll remember forever, I'm sure. I don't necessarily remember the view but I remember the food was delicious I remember the beautiful woman who was so proud of her food who brought it to us and you know I remember the goats Um, I'll I'll never have this experience again or anytime soon I'm sure zucchini blossoms like I didn't even know that they were a food before I I went to to Greece and Crete I think one of my favorite food memories was actually traveling in Japan Mm -hmm. we were in Kyoto, and we were near that uh, famous district that where the geisha live in train. I think it's called Gion. It was 8 million degrees, and uh, we were dying of heat. We were all starving. Everybody was kind of losing it a little bit, a little cranky. <laughs> and we were looking for somewhere to, you know, take a load off, get cool or whatever. Mm-hmm. And we always try and stay out of tourist, really touristy areas because we find the restaurants typically aren't as good as if you're just, you know, on the outside or off the beaten path a little bit. We were really fortunate. We found this little tiny, tiny restaurant. And when I say tiny, I mean like two or three tables plus a bar counter, like tiny. No idea really what we're going to get into. I mean, 
traveling in Japan was very easy, but you know, there was a significant language barrier and uh, we sat down. Everybody was super happy to find English translations. Mm -hmm. So I guess it was a little bit close to the Mm -hmm. tourist spots and a very familiar item on the menu, which was a burger, but this burger was a Wagyu burger. Of course. So Wagyu is, you know, those really happy cows that live in luxury and get massaged every day and whatever until they turn into food. Everybody was super happy, ordered the Wagyu burgers. I ordered mine with the lettuce and the kids and my husband had it with a bun and it arrived. And you would think that a burger is a burger pretty much anywhere. You can have good burgers, you can have bad burgers, but It's a burger. I've got a feeling this was a great burger. This was like a religious experience. This burger. Like my gingerbread. Like your gingerbread. (laughs) From episode one. This burger was seriously out of this world. I can almost even kind of remember at least the feeling we had when we were all eating. We couldn't believe it. Not one of us felt any differently. We were so amazed by how delicious. It was made by the burger gods in burger heaven. It was so good. Needless to say... We went back to that restaurant a couple times. Well, I guess it isn't always the most complicated food that's most memorable. Sometimes it can be the most simple food. Yep. But it's been prepared in a way that is new to us. Or maybe like in your case, it is just the ingredients themselves that are a different quality. Yeah. From firsthand experience, I have never experienced a baklava as good as I've experienced Greece. And thought about it a lot over the years. I haven't been able to put my finger on it exactly what it is, but I've got a feeling that it's the butter they use in Greece, that it's got to be different. Maybe the honey, possibly both, but I think maybe it's the butter. Yeah. You know, it's inevitable that not all our food experiences are going to be positive ones, though. Yeah. Especially those abroad when the food and maybe the languages of the people who are making and serving our food is foreign to us. Yep, yep. I like we were saying earlier, the bad experiences tend to be just as memorable as the great food experiences. I'll be honest, I'm probably not as adventurous as I could be. There's a little bit of room there for improvement in trying some unusual food or an unusual ingredients when yeah. I'm traveling. I think maybe at the basis of it is, you know, I do, I want to avoid offending the server when they come back and notice that I haven't touched my food for whatever reason. Maybe I'm finding it unappetizing. I was a server for many years in university, so I'm especially conscious of my behavior at restaurants. Absolutely. Um, I'm not a picky eater at all. And I do consider myself to be a good cook. It's one of my passions. But I am not a lover of organ meat, and I, I, I refrain from eating insects. Um, no crickets on the salad? No, okay. no, not for me. Okay. Um, I don't order them. Not that there's anything wrong with them. I know a lot of people enjoy both. But I'm one of those people that seldom goes into a restaurant and says, surprise me, you know, and order the chef brings yeah. me whatever. Yeah. I haven't had many bad experiences having said this. Um, I do remember the first time I traveled internationally and went to Rome and ordered a pizza, not really knowing what most of the ingredients were in the dishes featured on the menu. And my pizza came back with a big boiled egg on top. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so totally fine, but simply different than we were used to eating pizza, how we were used to eating it in North America, right? Mm -hmm. Or the first time I experienced a room temperature beer in a London pub on a layover. You know, having a room temperature beer, Guinness at that, was new to me. It took me a while to get that beer down. Yeah, it's more like a a meal It it was like a meal, exactly. 
Now, you've traveled to many foreign destinations. I'm sure you must have lots of examples. Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm not as adventurous either, and I'm certainly definitely not the person to say, oh, yeah, just give me whatever you want. <laughs> Chef special, hand it over. No, no Anthony Bourdain? No, no. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to admit, no, I'm a little bit more selective than that. Uh-huh. But my boys are pretty adventurous. Okay. For example, my eldest, when we were in Asia, he just ate everything. Like we would pass by a food stall. We couldn't recognize anything in there and he would just eat it. He had no idea what he was eating half the time. But one of my favorite stories is about my youngest kid. We were in Hong Kong and we were on Lantau Island and we had sat down for one of our first meals actually in Asia and it was a a ramen Mm -hmm. restaurant. So we all had ramen and you know, ramen has those white circular they're fish cakes actually in in the soup and they have that pink spiral in the middle Mm -hmm. so we all ate our meals we all totally enjoyed our meals we walk out of the restaurant belly's full and I turned to my youngest and I was like wow I'm really impressed with you you know you ate your fish cake no problem Mm -hmm. and he said what's a fish cake and I said it was that circular thing with the pink spiral (laughs) in it and he goes Oh, I thought that was a napkin. I'm like, what? (laughs) You thought it was a napkin and you still ate it? He's like, yeah, I didn't want to be rude. I'm like, oh my God. So, I mean, if eating napkins is adventurous, then he fits the bill. But he's still a massive ramen fan to this day. So it's true, I guess, right? The the part that food tourism is all about bringing back those memories and continuing to relive that experience back home. Yeah, yeah. If you're a true food tourist, then maybe coming home means beginning to plan your next foodie travel adventure the minute you walk in the door. Have you had this experience upon returning from a trip that, you know, where you had to recreate a food or go find a drink? that you experience while away? Oh, absolutely. Pretty much every time I travel, I come home with the intention of of recreating something that I experienced on my holiday in my own kitchen. Mm-hmm. And it's really expanded my whole family's horizons when it comes to food. And right. I think it's probably made me a better cook as well. Right. Well, I think the first time it happened to me, it was a drink, actually, not a food. And it was a melancello that I had had in Southern Italy. And I'll Yummy. remember it forever. Oh. In terms of food, I think I'm constantly, though, trying to improve my Greek salad. But again, something like the baklava, something always seems to be a little bit off the mark. Either my tomatoes aren't ripe enough or the olive oil isn't quite right or the oregano isn't the same as what I experienced when I was in Greece. Something just, there's just something missing. Yeah. Well, it could be the tomatoes. I find our tomatoes in North America are bland Mm -hmm. flavorless compared to the tomatoes in Europe Mm -hmm. unless maybe you cultivate them yourself but the oregano too like Greek Mm -hmm. oregano is something so special and we're so fortunate you and I because we have a common friend who travels to Greece quite often Mm -hmm. almost annually and brings us back gorgeous Greek olive oil and and oregano so it's so so divine but yeah it's never exactly the way it is but at least it approximates it. So is there a dish that you personally have experienced when you were away that you wanted to make but just haven't gotten around to yet? Or it doesn't have to be one that you've experienced necessarily, a place that you've been to, but one that you want to visit. Maybe it's a place you still, you know, it's on your bucket list and it's known for a specific dish that you'd like to make. Yeah, I don't think it would be a specific dish. Mm-hmm. I love South Asian food. Right. I love Indian food. The flavors are so complex and just so rich and delicious. Anytime I order out, it's typically 
Indian food. Me too. I would really like to become more adept in creating that cuisine and maybe being able to serve a full Indian menu. I have a, a beautiful girl in my life. She's actually the girlfriend of my eldest kiddo. Maybe she can give me some tips or her beautiful mom too. Uh, I can make a pretty good chana masala, but that's about it at the moment. Mm. Yeah, I've always wanted to learn more about Indian cooking as well. I would say beyond that, I've I've always wanted to take a course only on sauces, oh, particularly French sauces, because yeah. it seems the sauces make such a big difference. It really does all come down to the flavors and the texture, consistency right. of the sauce, doesn't it? Oh, for sure. And, yeah. you know, I'm sure we've all had moments in our life where we've scraped every little bit of sauce off our plate at least once or twice because it was so good. Maybe even licked the plate. Uh, in, you did in, not in, in say private, that on in private. air. Oh, my God. Bad <laughs> yeah. behavior, Walker. Yummy. We do not lick the plate. <laughs> well, at least in public. At home, you can do whatever you want. That's fine. It's interesting. Food tours these days, they include a lot of cooking classes or farm visits mm -hmm. or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. They're designed, I think, too, so that we can customize them to our own interests, including where we want to go and what we want to experience. You might think that food tourism and these kinds of tours just benefit the, the tourists themselves, but that actually isn't the case. Mm -hmm. Food tourism has a much, much wider reach. It can directly affect the people and the places where we visit. The WFTA, the World Food Travel Association, says that food tourists spend approximately 25% or a quarter of their vacation budget on food and drink. This can be really beneficial to the local economy where, where the tourists are actually going. Right. I don't know about you, but I think I spend way more than that. Like maybe 25% on, okay, I need to have food in my belly so mm -hmm. I can get through the day. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're always seeking out unique experiences, mm -hmm. even maybe sometimes a high end or fine dining experience, like, which sometimes costs a fortune. So I don't know. What about you? We go through phases. My husband and I do not go away as much as we would really like to. But when we do travel on our own without our children, the focus in the past, the focus was always on fine dining for dinner yeah. and maybe some low key restaurants um, that are known for serving local fare for lunch. But the evening was always fine dining. I think it probably reminds us of when we were single. And yeah. Money, you know, yeah, before, 100%. Before all of Date that. Night. But when, exactly. But when the kids are with us, we bring it down a notch for dinner. Uh, the last trip, however, it was just the two of us. And we opted for more casual neighborhood restaurants and gastropubs. I don't think, you know, it was conscious decision. We just weren't as organized as right. we typically are. I think we were focusing on other aspects of the trip. But the food was absolutely excellent. Yeah. You don't have to spend a lot of money. But even the money that we do spend, and especially food tourists, they probably spend even more. The opportunity to have a positive impact on the local people is really significant. There's potential to improve the lives even of people not only in urban centers, but also out in the rural areas right. of a destination, whether it's food production or in the hospitality industries or just food and Bev. Right. That income that food tourism generates filters up the chain mm -hmm. and can then be reinvested in the local infrastructure or creating more jobs, bringing more money yeah. to the region. Clearly, there's a lot to it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, it makes me think of Iceland because 
though it wasn't food in that case that was driving the force behind their success, they really looked at creative ways to bring more tourists to the island through their national airline and other cooperating partners. And it's really taken off, filled their coffers, and now mm. millions of tourists are going there. Very annually. popular place. Yeah, yeah. And I actually had a really exceptional food experience in Iceland. Oh, really? So I've never been to Iceland personally. What was their cuisine like? Well, first of all, let me just say it's one of my most favorite places on the planet. That's saying a lot because you've been to a lot of places. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It is definitely top three. It is stunningly beautiful from a natural landscape perspective. The people are amazing. People say it's really expensive. I didn't find it to be. Anyhow, that maybe that's another episode, but their cuisine is, um, it features lamb and fish as mainstays. They also eat horse. Uh, but I actually had this experience at a tomato farm. Hmm. It was called Friedheimar, which I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that properly, but if you are Icelandic, feel free to message me and give me the <laughs> correct pronunciation. The tomatoes are grown at this farm year round in a greenhouse and it's all, um, green energy so the geothermal energy from the because it's very volcanic in in iceland with pure water and they use also biological pest control so there are bees everywhere pollinating all the tomato flowers and you know how much i love bees and they had this little restaurant there too which was brilliant where we had bloody marys and this exceptional tomato soup that was just very simple Mm -hmm. but just beautifully flavored perfect consistency and even my husband who hates tomatoes like hates tomatoes love the soup so there were tour buses who are bringing tourists to this tomato farm off the beaten path so that was a true true food experience in Iceland wow who would have thought that a you know a successful tomato food experience would be Iceland Italy yes but Iceland I know, no, right? Yeah. It's, I mean, you had me at the Blood of Mary. I know. <laughs> Mary. Oh, they were so good. They were so, so good. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty amazing to see how tourism and food tourism can really impact a region or even a nation. It encourages that kind of entrepreneurship, like, for example, in that tomato farm. But it also helps to preserve cultural heritage, too. When I was younger, a lot younger, and a lot more poor, we went backpacking in Brazil and we ended up in the Amazon jungle. We went out for a very frightening hike with a local guide. We didn't speak each other's language at all. So it was all hand gesture communication. We were in a canoe. We were hiking on the ground in our sandals and bare feet. I'm just telling you, it was terrifying. But anyway, he showed us so many of the natural sources um, of food in that living environment. And It really, really stuck out in my mind. I remember he pulled these giant, they look like big giant beans off a tree. I thought you were going to say bugs. No, oh, (laughs) we don't even want to get into the bugs. We'll talk about insects another time. Oh my Lord. I'm telling you. Oh, they could like rip your head off the bugs in there. Anyway, we're not going there. But these seed pods, I guess they were seed pods. He opened it up and there were all of these huge square seeds that look like giant chiclet gum pieces Mm. that were covered in this white fruity flesh that were so delicious. I have never been able to find that flavor anywhere Mm. else on the planet. Sweet. And then there were avocados with very smooth, smooth skin. You know how our avocados have that bumpy skin. It was very smooth, huge avocados that tasted out of this world. Like you haven't tasted an avocado until you've 
been in the Amazon jungle eating avocado. There was also this tree where he sliced the bark with his machete and it bled literally like copious amounts of this white, thick, milky sap, which apparently was good for diarrhea. Okay, so I've got to ask your guide, how did he communicate that to you? If he didn't speak English. The diarrhea? Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. Yeah, it was charades of a sort. And quite funny, come to think of it. So I guess we were kind of on a food tour in Brazil, even though we were backpacking and had, I mean, I think our budget was something like under $5 a day. Mm -hmm. It was very lean, but we had so many interesting food experiences during that trip. But now so many of these destinations are overrun with tourists. So this can have a negative impact on these areas and countries as well that cater to to food tourists. Regions can have limited resources that can be overwhelmed, like the necessities of life, like water, land, food, electricity. If all of these are funneled into tourism and food tourism, they're not going to serve the local population well enough. And it's tough because governments around the world recognize how much money you can make Mm -hmm. with tourism and food tourism. So it's it's walking that line of bringing in dollars, but at what expense to to the local people? And also, you know, thinking about that Wagyu burger. Some local restaurants cater to tourist tastes and are moving away from their own local food traditions. So that's probably not a great cultural or social impact on the food traditions there. There is one example I have, like a recent example that I'm a little embarrassed to admit, but we were in Barcelona and needing breakfast before we visited the Sagrada Familia. And we were hungry and didn't take the time to make a good choice of a local restaurant, ended up at some crappy fries shop. But it happens, right? Mm, Uh, But I just worry about the impact of the accessibility of those kinds of places over the local mom and pop, more authentic places. And then I guess the, the other thing is, in these areas, and we have seen this around the world, there's a real risk that the price of goods and services in these these countries and in these regions are driven up because of tourists bringing in lots of dollars, right? And this can force the local people to leave the communities. And then again, it has an impact on on the culture and sort of the social economic landscape of those places. These are all things to be mindful of when planning a holiday with food on the agenda. Yeah. Um, So... What do you think are, what are the trends right now among foodies out there? Well, I think uh, there's a trend towards seeking out organically grown and authentic dishes, not unlike what we see here at home. Right. Right. Um, The millennial and Gen Z generation, though, they've really got it right. Apparently 63% of these kids, and I can call them kids Mm -hmm. because I'm over half a century old, so they're all kids to me, but they really prioritize eating in places and in destinations where social responsibility features really large on the menu and in the kitchen. Mm. But other than that, beverages are still still big business, maybe even bigger than they were before. So things like whiskey or wine, mm-hmm. beer, mm-hmm. and gin distilleries, super popular. But yeah. people are now gravitating to smaller craft and artisanal producers. Right. Well, maybe the pandemic has driven us all to drink a little bit. Oh, yeah. 
You know, though, it's interesting. It seems to be very in line with the way that many celebrities these days have been launching their own spirit brands. Yeah, it's so true. Every time I go to the liquor store, there's some new Mm. celebrity venture being promoted there. Okay, so do you have any tips for those of us wanting to jump in and plan such a food adventure? Yeah, I do, actually. I think... I would take the time in advance, and many people probably already do, Mm -hmm. to get really knowledgeable on the local customs and food etiquette, even above and beyond what's being served. Do your research. You want to tread lightly and be really respectful wherever you're finding yourself sitting down to eat. So, for example, these are maybe um, a little bit better known customs and, and rules for etiquette, but, for example, in the Middle East you are to avoid eating with your left hand. It's deemed as unhygienic, disrespectful to your host, because that is the hand that is more identified with washing and, and bathing. And in Asia, this is something that, that is, is commonly known too. It's very taboo to stick your chopsticks upright in your meal, like in your bowl of rice or whatever, because those chopsticks are reminiscent of uh, incense that's burned at funeral ceremonies. So, considered to be bad luck so Mm. don't do that frowned upon did not know that no oh you didn't know that no I mean I haven't done it but well good who would do that right I mean well it's kind of rude well it's like sticking a fork in your steak yeah and it's sticking straight up out of your plate (laughs) just not a good look and in Chile I did not know this it's really not um, recommended that you eat with your hands so even if you get served something that we would typically eat with our hands like a corn on the cob or um, chicken wings or something like that mm-hmm. it's it's not considered a respectful way of eating you use your knife and fork okay yeah so I think it's critical to avoid also taking part in activities that would hurt or have a negative impact on animals or the environment of course now in different cultures we mentioned like in Iceland you know they eat horse mm-hmm. so some animal protein is maybe not what you're accustomed to eating. Mm-hmm. I'm not making a comment on that. I'm just saying that it's important that people maybe make informed choices about eating animals that are ethically raised. And in terms of the environment, it's a biggie. You know, Big Agra uses nasty pesticides and herbicides that impact our pollinators and our soil quality. So at home and abroad, do your best to eat as clean as you possibly can. It's good for you. It's good for the environment. And not only that, be mindful of, you know, the footprint you're leaving I was reading that the production of waste from tourism can really negatively impact local environments. I came across a lot of examples of this where over-tourism has resulted in negative environmental impacts. So, for example, Bandung City in West Java in Indonesia, Mm -hmm. they suffered really quite seriously from a vastly increased volume of garbage, and it was all food packaging from visitors to the area. Or Boracay or Boraki Island in the Philippines, they actually had to close the island to tourists for six months so it could be rehabilitated. It was so negatively impacted by visitors. That's shocking. It's horrible, isn't it? Horrible. It's really shocking. I mean, you think about people who actually are residents there, mm-hmm. right? And the environment that they're forced to live in. So it's best to listen to the locals when they're sharing their food with you because they're often sharing their culture with you too. And they can educate you and steer you in the right direction because it's it's really a privilege to have someone share their culture with you, don't you think? Absolutely. You know, food is something that is so fundamental to the human experience. We bond over it. We use it to care for each other. And of course, we need it to survive. 
But food is much more than any of that. Food expresses heritage, custom, and tradition. Food promotes the local bounty and its own unique flavors and ingredients. Food creates identity. We seek experiences beyond our own homes, our own kitchens, and our own culture, and we can now customize our travel to incorporate destination cuisine and food customs, creating new and unique memories that we can easily bring home. We are reminded to be respectful, to recognize that we are guests in a different land, to tread lightly and care for the local people, animals, and environment, as we should do too in our own backyards. We are likely all food tourists in one way or another, so nosh on Nasi Goreng in Malaysia and bring on the biryani and start planning your next great adventure in food. Thank you for joining us at At Home and Abroad with your hosts, Harrison Walker. Follow us each week as we continue the conversation. Go!